All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited to have Lee Taft on today. And, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I got you in now because I know that you're going to be coming up to New York City uh, at Reload Physical Therapy uh, July 24th, 25th, I believe, yeah, are the dates. Yeah, it's that weekend. Yep, absolutely. And um, Yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm going to be coming to that seminar. And awesome. um, I'm, I've been looking forward to this one. Um, you know, I would love it if you could give a, a brief introduction of who you are. And then um, I'm going to have some specific questions. You know, we'll, yeah. we'll get into all that sort of stuff. But if you want to take it away, tell everybody sure. who you are, Lee. That would be great. Absolutely. Thanks, Pat. First of all, thank you for inviting me on. I've always been a big fan of yours. I love your approach. I love your style of coaching and teaching. And I think you're, you know, we look for people that are impactful, you know, especially those of us who've been in the industry for a long time. You know, we look for people that are making a difference. And you're, you're right on the top of that list. So I appreciate uh, you inviting me to to share some time with you. Um, but I, I'm, I'm someone that grew up in athletics. I'm the youngest of six. All my brothers and sisters, with the exception of one, were all teachers. And uh, on, the, on the guy side, it was my, my dad, who was in it 44 years, was phys ed, coaching, athletic director, and eventually principal. My brothers, same thing. They're all retired now. And so I'm going on like my 34th year of being involved with it. And back in the early 90s, like 91, I left, I left teaching and I, and I ended up going to the United States Sports Academy so I could get my master's done. And I ended up from there, I ended up at Bulletary's Tennis Academy, which most people know as IMG now. But mm -hmm. when I was there, the IMG hadn't taken it over yet. And that was kind of the genesis of this journey I've been on with performance. You know, I started there. I, I worked, obviously, it was tennis. And then I went on to another tennis academy up in Tampa, Florida, and in like 92-ish. And then I went out, you know, on my own and trained athletes from all sports and, and traveled. And you know, Pat, because you've gone through this, you know, you kind of put your 16-hour days in and you work with every athlete and client you can. And then eventually you start getting asked to like, hey, would you teach? our coaches something. And then the consulting started to come around, you know, probably many years into my, my tenure of doing this. And now that's what I do a lot of. I do a lot of mentoring, a lot of workshops around the country and outside uh, the country, and um, which has led me to where I am now. And fortunately, like you mentioned, I developed a really good relationship with Ryan and his staff up in New York at Reload and, and uh, get a chance to go back there again and, and share some time with you and and that's kind of where we're at. You're just enjoying life and having a good time. And I just accepted a head coaching job as a basketball coach. So as if I didn't oh. have enough to do. So I kind of, <laughs> I'm a gym rat. So I love it. I mean, look, like I, I get it. I, uh, you know, I got into all this, the coaching side, because I just love to compete as an athlete. And um, I don't know anything other than that, really. You know what I mean? Like sports were always really good to me. And it gave me a sense of like, family, direction, the whole thing. And so it's it's just kind of a world that I, I immersed myself into. Yeah. And it's led to a lot of really great things. And it's just, you know, but I always kind of go back to like training and, and just being a part of, of really living the life of uh, what's involved with, with physical development. And, yeah. and I've just found it to be a really beautiful thing. Now, I, I got uh, a chance to hear you speak in Indiana a number of yeah. years ago. And, um, you know, it was it was one of the events that Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman were putting on. And um, 
you know, you were teaching on, you know, it's hard to know what to call these things anymore. The names yeah. change so often, <laughs> yeah. but like multi-directional athletic development sounds like yeah. probably that sort of a name for it. Speed and agility. Um, you know, just in my mind, it's just like being an athlete, getting yeah. out there, running, changing directions and having a like dominating and controlling the space around you in a three-dimensional manner. Exactly. Um, you know, one of the things that popped to me that you talked about was, you know, I might be using different words, but kind of like, you know, we are creatures on this planet that evolved. And, you know, do you really think as a coach, you're smarter than all of the years of evolution that led to the body's ability to move the way that it does? If you, whatever circumstance you're finding yourself in, the body will respond the best it's able to. Your job as a coach in many ways is to create the right context for the drill and build the environment around the athlete to get what you're looking for, you know? And to me, like this, like what I I think I know from, from competing and training and being coached for decades and decades going way back, you know, there's been so many things that coaches trying to take out false steps trying to be very specific about, hey, you got to move this way for this yeah. drill. And and what you're saying had to be heresy at a certain point oh. and probably still is in a lot of circles. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, what led you to learning the approach that you have and like can kind of describe it and, and yeah. sort of talk about the overall essence of, of what it is that you do and how you acquired that approach. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because, uh, and I've talked about this a lot over the years. So really the, the genesis of the whole thing started when I was a college athlete, I was a college basketball player. And and I, can, I still remember being at a practice one day and this was kind of preseason stuff, but, you know, the coach put us on the line and blew the whistle, you know, you had to run up and down. And he, he kept stopping us. We'd take off and stop. He goes, you guys are false stepping. And and I'm I was the captain of our team. And I said, coach, because he stopped us two, three times. I'm like, I don't get it. What do you mean? We're, you know, he goes, well, you guys are stepping back before you go forward. I said, oh, I, I didn't notice that. I didn't feel like I'm stepping backwards. So what I did, Pat, is over time, I started watching film. Like he made me watch film of the game and, you know, my decisions and all. But then I started to watch footwork. I said, I just I want to know what he's talking about. So I actually watched myself move defensively and offensively. And I noticed my feet consistently what I call repositioning. So like I might be in a parallel stance and all of a sudden my opponent did something, my feet readjusted quickly. And I'm thinking, I know I didn't think to do that. Like that wasn't a predetermined thought in my head to move my, it just was a reaction. And that got my wheel spinning. This was about 1987, 86. And so I just started going on this journey of how do I learn about that stuff? And way, way back, well, probably one of the first, people that I heard talk about any kind of really speed stuff other than track athlete, like track speed, but what was, you know, Vern Gambetta started talking about mm. stuff and, but, but there wasn't any real major principles that I was seeing. He was talking about arm action and all the normal stuff and getting in a good defensive stance, but I kept thinking, all right, but we're moving differently than people are teaching us. Like that's not how I'm moving. And then when I, I started watching film of, you know, the Michael Jordans and the Barry Sanders and the, you know, Walter Payton. And then I said, you know what, though? I went back in time and I looked at Gail Sayers 
I looked at Sammy Ball. I looked at uh, Muhammad Ali in the ring. I looked at people who didn't have guys like you and I who were starting to specialize in different types of, te- you know, training techniques and all. And I said, they're doing the same damn thing we're doing and they weren't taught that. So what the hell, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing to these athletes, mm-hmm. you know, telling them to put their right foot here and their left foot here. So what I started to realize is the body, and I, had, I remember I had a really good conversation with Bill Hartman on this. And I, I went up to him one time and I said, Bill, you know, just correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm like, I don't think the body is ever wrong. Mm-hmm. I think the body has like, because of a deficiency or a dysfunction or a low function in capacity has um, less than optimal movements. Cause maybe I have a weakness, a tightness, a loss of stability or something, but the reaction, the, the inherent reaction that the body does based on what you, the defender makes me do the offensive player, the body's not normally wrong. It's just, we don't have the right structure maybe at that time. And it just became kind of faulty looking, but we can't negate the central nervous system. You put it perfectly of years and decades and centuries and, you know, of, of development to protect ourselves and survive. And that's how I built my entire philosophy over these three decades. It's like, what would I have done if I were trying to escape or attack to put self-preservation? What would I have done? Right. Just watch, so, somebody sent me a video the other day of a, a wild animal, I, I can't remember, it was some kind of a deer getting a drink out of a, out of a pond and there was an alligator that was getting ready to pop up and they showed the feet just repositioning and just exploding. And the guy <laughs> sent it to me, he said, we're not the only ones that do that. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> so Somebody needs of, to get that deer to not fall step, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's kind of how it all started. And then what I did, because, I, you know, obviously I was in, I wasn't smart enough. I didn't know. But I, over the years, I started to look at biomechanics. And then somehow I got connected with just physics and said, okay, well, what does this action reaction stuff really mean? What does it mean to actually accelerate? Like, what does that look like? We all talk about acceleration, but what does it look like mechanically? You know, what do, do my actions look like? And when it becomes a reactionary acceleration versus like a track athlete that can, you know, maybe in practice go when they're ready to go. But if it's you and I playing football, yeah. I, I, I got to go when it's time to go. Right. So that's kind of how it went. And then, you know, that kind of led to where we are now. But you're right. I took a beating pack for years, especially when I first came out with this plyo step, you know, stuff decades ago. People are like, no. And I'm like, just watch your athletes. Don't take my word for it. Just watch them. They're like, yeah, our athletes do it all the time and we have to correct them. I'm like, gosh, you're, the, the central nervous system is beating you on the head. Listen, right. listen to it. It's trying to tell you something. It's dropping clues. Listen to what's happening and then just correct posture, correct strength, give them more mobility or whatever they need. Yeah. You know, I, the, the, the thing that hit me so hard with listening to you and it, it came, came back again. It's just this idea, like the oldest game on this planet is predator prey. Yep. You know, and do you think that there's going to be a mistake in the, like there's a long vetting process here. <laughs> like you're here for a reason. Like somehow you made the other things lunch and avoided being lunch, or at least your ancestors did. And so trust some of the gifts that they gave you 
But, um, you know, in a lot of ways, don't screw up those gifts either with very unnatural kinds of practice, I think, in, in some ways. Like, you know, I, I've certainly participated in strength sports for a long time, and that leads to some significant alterations in your body. And I can't get into positions that, you know, I would have been able to get into if I had just sort of played sports and like not really gone down these crazy pathways of barbell training and uh, strongman and bodybuilding and everything else. It, it can, it will create structural changes that, that rob you of motions sure. so that you can specialize, you know, like, and, and so I'm kind of curious, like, like I look at it as a, you know, Rob Peter to pay Paul kind of a thing. If you want yeah. the Mount Everest of development in some qualities, you're probably going to create Mariana's trench in some other qualities, yeah. you know, what, where are some of the, the really common mistakes you see for athletes uh, with the training methods that have, that have kind of come along over the years? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really like this question because that's, we, we, if we look at the, if we look at the grand scheme of performance, we really have three major things. And then we have the, the, so we got, we got speed, we got strength, we got conditioning. Those are the mm-hmm. main two things. And then we have the mobility and the stability, you know, those things that we have to take care of. And then nutrition, you know, we know that sleep, rest, recovery. But if we look at the three main training things, those are the ones that we look at. And if you and I were to look at an athlete and we watch them participate, let's say lacrosse or whatever sport we want to say, and we look at them and we say, yeah, man, they're, I mean, they're quick. They just dart in and out and they're very deceptive. They get by people and all. But anytime there's contact, that's when they become kind of the victim in the sport. They, they, mm-hmm. they now default to the opponent because they physically can't handle things. So you and I have to use our brain and say, OK, we, we like their speed, but let's just keep that going. Let's not lose that. Let's support it. But maybe if we can give them a little bit more strength, power maybe better balance versus a contact or a combative situation, like a wrestler, right? Sometimes they don't have to be the strongest. They just have to have incredible balance and use their body awareness really well. So maybe that's our approach. The problem is, and this is where I see a lot of the issues, is we have these incredibly quick athletic athletes, and we, we negate that by going into a strength program that does just what you said. It's now limiting their range of motion. It's because they're going extremely heavy. Maybe they took on a power lifting. Maybe the, the head coach had a power lifting background and that's what they know or a, a bodybuilding background. And I love those sports. I have nothing against them, but you and I have got to look, you know, very rationally at athletic development because most of these kids are coming to us to get better at their sport. They don't care if they have bigger biceps or bigger yep. thighs or hips. They want to use that to perform better. So we have to be very selective. Too many coaches say, oh, we just, every, if they're stronger, they're better. Well, maybe, maybe not. I've seen athletes that strength got them better in speed and sprinting and everything. And then they kept going. It's almost yeah. like, you know, I got to the point where, oh, it's great. And then I kept going. And now all of a sudden we saw a little bit of a decrement in their speed. We just saw them. Now they're just not as elastic and as explosive and they didn't have the range of motion. So that's my, that's one of my points of contention with training. I'm like, I'm, I'm not a really big person. Um, my, my values as an athlete were speed, quickness. I could read really well. I could move. 
But I developed strength as I got older that helped me when I needed it. If I took away my speed and really raised my strength, I wouldn't be a better athlete because my speed is what made me elusive. And that's where I think we make a mistake. We're so afraid because we all push strength is important, but we have to understand what does strength really mean? I I think anyway. Yeah. You know, I like, I'm going to have a a question after this, but you know, one of the, like, I I have something that I think is a a pretty unifying concept that I, I just call ground. Okay. And to me, ground is an immovable surface or pretty close to immovable surface that you can push against. And I think that there's different amounts of ground that exist in sports. Okay. Like there's high ground sports and there's low ground sports. Like the lowest ground sports to me are things like Olympic diving, you know, skateboarding uh, with the aerial stuff, uh, freestyle ski jumping, uh, snowboard, half pipe. Those, those to me are the lowest ground sports where literally the athlete is in the air and they're the great competitors are the ones that generally twist and tumble the best and the most. And then there's very high ground sports. And those are like powerlifting is probably the highest ground sport, uh, bodybuilding, sumo wrestling, interior line play in football. Yeah. Those are like the really extreme high ground sports. And the other ones are somewhere in the middle. And to me, I look at it like the sports that have the least amount of ground have the athletes with the least amount of hypertrophy that dominate. And the ones that have the most ground have the athletes with the most hypertrophy. And those are the ones that dominate. And you have to kind of determine how much ground does the athlete interact with in their sport. And that will tell you like I classify exercises by how much ground they actually have like a leg press highest ground exercise I can picture, you know, your back is against this immovable surface, your butts against an immovable surface. The actual sled is pretty damn near immovable as you add weight, your hands are attached to something. And then on the other side, like you have low ground exercises some of them, like like a rear foot supported in a TRX strap uh, yeah. split squat, very low ground exercise. And trying to match and correspond the amount of ground for the athlete in their sport with the exercise that you actually have. Like that to me is how I want to match, yeah. uh, you know, your strength training with what you need for your sport. Um, and not making that mistake in terms of like what you're actually providing to the individual from, a like, I, I think that there's different, you know, running, jumping, throwing, changing direction. Those are hard to change in terms of how much ground you, you apply, but from the strength training side of things, I see that's where sort of like the, the, this other concept kind of comes in and probably plays an enormous role and has been kind of misunderstood because you get sort of the crowd that's like, uh, you know, your, your strength purists, they're going to make fun of, of the like, you know, TRX type exercises or, you know, unstable things or whatever it is you want to call it. But I think there's just a lack of understanding about what's needed as an outcome standpoint from that. Um, and so I'm, I'm just kind of curious if, like, you know, you were bringing up this idea of like, hey, you can drive 
some of these, you know, classical strength movements and, and uh, musculoskeletal development too far. And I'm, do you have like certain performance indicators or tests where you would say, hey, as soon as this test starts to deteriorate, we're probably going too far with, the, with you know, the muscle building and strength stuff. Like, yeah. you have like some indicators on that front? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, you'll, as you go through this and you've heard me speak, I'm very caveman. I'm, I'm like Dr. Seuss. I, I try to keep things very simple because I want my explanations to moms and dads and to the mm-hmm. athletes themselves and to coaches to say, oh, okay, I get it. You know, I don't want them to have to think, you know, how they, they say, yeah, okay, yeah, but they really don't get it, right? It's kind of like when my accountant talks to us. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got it. I'm, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, <laughs> so let me give you an example. And we do this. And actually, I'm getting ready to do what I call a little combine. I'm going to have some fun with my basketball kids. And we're going to test them on some stuff. So I have a jump mat. And so mm-hmm. you know what a jump mat is, but most people might not. It's just a, it's a, you know, a square that has a little electronic little thing and you jump and it tells you, hey, you jump, you know, 19 inches or 28 inches or whatever off the ground. And it can tell you some other things. So, and I've had this happen to me. So that's one of my, one of my testers. I like using that as a test just to kind of see where they're at, what kind of, uh, you know, power output they have and what kind of elasticity they have. So we'll test them this different ways. And then as we're going through our strength program and we're doing stuff, if if I see that that number keeps increasing, just even if it's, you know, point some point two, point one, whatever, it just keeps creeping up. I know I'm doing something right mm. or or maybe they're recovering better. Maybe I've adjusted them enough and they're taking my advice and getting to bed early and that's doing it, whatever. I'm happy as long as it's working. But when I start to see even when I do like they've warmed up and sometimes I'll have them do like four or five tests just to let me know what their CNS is like today. Cause if it's really well below their average jump, I won't even tell them, but I'll change the day. We'll go into something different because I just know they don't have the output today. So that's a really good one for me. And I have seen it when I've made a mistake because the athlete like, ah, oh, I think I can get 200 on the squat. Can we try to work for that? And we go, and next thing I know, other things start to come down a little bit of speed. The other one is I do a seated, uh, long seat, okay, so legs extended, medicine ball throw, and I take a measuring tape, and I put the zero at their kneecaps, because that's about where the hands release the ball, and then we throw it, and same thing like the vertical. We give them four or five attempts, we get their best, and then we measure it over time. I've had kids that dropped off like three and a half, four feet consistently because we spent too much time in the wrong bucket and with too much strength because their coach said, they got to get stronger. We're going to test them. You know, they have to show this much on their bench. So I'm kind of like, it's not really what I want to do, but if they're going to go back and they're going to get yelled at by their coach. So we did it, but I saw a decrement in their form of their upper body speed and power. So those are two simple ones. Yeah, that I will use for a lower and an upper body and and then obviously sprint speed and, you know, even shorter sprint speed and stuff like that. And I think people have to be careful because sometimes what they'll do is they'll measure like 10 yards. 10 yards is going to tell me some things, some valuable things like force production, yeah. uh, you know, peak power output on that first to second step, how much force I can produce. But if it's an athlete that is better at the elastic part, some of your younger, less powerful athletes might be gazelles after the 10 yards, but turtles 
in the first time because they don't have the strength, they don't have the power. So we got to be careful to measure. So I measure both my short ones and my a little bit longer, at least 20 to 30, because I can see a difference. And if those change because of my training methods, then I know I have to kind of reevaluate and go back to where we were to keep that athleticism in place. Yeah, I'm like in my head picturing that Charlie Francis graph of the different distances and the different qualities that fit into that. And with that, you know, that strength being in that first chunk, that zero to 10, and then the speed strength being in the 10 to 20 and the 20 to, you know, 60 being elasticity dominated. And, um, you know, like when you think about those different qualities and helping people get faster, you know, do you have sort of your favorites or your go-to sorts of drills or activities that you prefer for like, hey, we got to get this kid stronger to get them faster, or this one needs to be more elastic. What what are your favorite sorts of modalities or practices for those different qualities? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I, I do have some favorites that I like, but I sometimes I have to put those favorites aside based on yeah. what I feel the athlete can do. I'm a big, I'm a big, um, I love squatting, love the variations of squatting. I'm a big step up guy. I always mm. have been. I have multiple variations of step ups of different ones that I've used for years and years based on like I have a particular type of step up, step up if I want to be really hip dominant. And then I have a version of a very quad dominant uh, method. So if I'm working and I, I coached track for years, worked with a lot of sprinters, a lot of people that had to come out of blocks. So the methodologies that I would use to help that athlete become very explosive was different sometimes than I would like when I I was also a head football coach. And when I worked with my linemen, it was a little bit different just because of their needs and what they what they needed. Their body structure handled certain exercises better. And I'm really big on not only do I have to go with what I know is going to work. But if, but if a couple of different strategies are close and the athlete likes one better, I'll go there 100% of the time because I'm yeah. going to get better buy-in. They're going to do it. And then I'll sneak in the other one. You know, I'll get that one. i say, hey, I gave you four weeks. Now you got to give me a couple, you know, on this other exercise just because I need to make sure you're safe and you're healthy. So step-ups, um, you know, and, and I'm not talking about just body weight step-ups. I, mm-hmm. I have a version of it. Actually, my daughter... Bailey, who's a college basketball player, just finished her four-week cycle of it. And she was going with um, dumbbell held slightly below parallel. So her kneecap was above her ASIS on these. And she was going with 90 pounds uh, dumbbell. She's not a very big athlete, but she's done these a lot. And it kicks her butt, but it's low, low rep, low rep. Just like I would be if I were doing powerlifting, but this is more towards the single leg and helps her every time. She she gets better, her speed goes up, but we don't we don't live in that for too long. And then we'll switch and we'll go to maybe a hex bar deadlift at a higher um, depth or less depth. So now yeah. we're working on a different range. So that's how I manipulate it, Pat. I just go in between. I do have my favorites, but I'll default to what I think is going to be their most beneficial exercise of the major lifts, you know, right. pretty much. You know, yeah. I, I, with the different depths and things, I'm almost picturing again, some of those, uh, those old school Russian manuals with the hand oh, drawings yeah. and like, yes. you know, the accentuation phases where you, you know, it's, it's a shorter range of motion when you're working on the top speed elements versus yep. the starts and accelerations being in these deeper 
positions. Do you do you do any corresponding stuff in terms of the range of motion that you'll have with your strength exercises with what what quality you're working on uh, from in terms of that that element? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so I'm I'm very you know very basic. I, I'm going to develop a foundation. I want my athletes to be able to have great depth and motion squatting and and we'll, we'll slant board them we'll do all the things to give them a healthy capacity in as many range of motions as possible that's healthy for them and really good and then because of my years coaching track as i would peak my athletes towards the states and you know sectionals regional states and 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 depending on where you are in the the country it, it varies but we started to elevate them so we would get them up so even when i would do my step up my step-up versions versus my front squat, back squat, other type of uh, even single leg squatting, we would get them less depth, even to the point where sometimes I was only 10 degrees of a bend, but we're loading weight and we're uh, potentiating it. And we're really trying to drive through that final phase really, really quick. Not saying that in that phase, we might do a few reps of full depth still, maybe body weight, maybe goblets, just so they don't lose that. But the actual load was going to be much more of just a a very, very uh, stable, tall position. And what I would do, Pat, is I actually, it's funny because I have them all over the place in my garage here. I have um, PVC pipes, right? And, and when I was a high school strength coach or when I worked with athletes individual, I would take the PVC pipe and I'd put it right next to them. And they'd look in the mirror and i say, your body has to get at this phase. You know, your body has to be as close to that as possible. So I don't want a huge bend. During the early phases in the summer, we're doing stuff. I want you to look like a W. I want your butt out here, your shoulders here, your knees here, because we're going we're gonna to crunch you down like an aluminum can. But during this other part, I want you to play with the vertical axis as much as you can. Live in that vertical axis because that's where I need you to be explosive. Whether you're a middle blocker in volleyball and we're trying to get you peaked, you know, towards and feel real fresh, or maybe you're a, a high jumper or something like that. We need to get you up a little bit. So that was a really good cue for me to get them to understand. Okay, I get it. I don't want to go almost like a jerk. Right. Yeah. I'm in a jerk phase. I don't want to go real deep. I just need to get that load enough, but I'm still in that vertical plane quite a bit. Right. It's um, yeah, it's it, that's one of those ones where, you know, to me, I always question pretty much everything. You know what I mean? Like and I think you probably come from a similar similar mindset, especially yep. considering, you know, questioning all of the coaching steps and going way back with that. And, and so I have always wondered, you know, I, I always look at like, hey, you know, the weight room, I'm not going to mess with it too much. Like, we're just going to lift and get strong with basics. Yeah. And, and then when it comes to, you know, moving you for sports, it's similar thing. Like, we're going to run. I'm going to build your drills. We're going to shuffle. We're going to sprint, sprint back pedal. And we're going to pivot. And we're going to, you know, move that way. Um, and so I've always kind of, I always enjoy the conversations with the alterations of depth. And the trying to create that correspondence with phases of the season and peaking and things like that. And I'm always, you know, I, I'm always like, do we have data to support it? I don't know if we do or if we don't, but like, there's certainly enough, um, you know, coaches that have seen very good responses from that. And that's something you don't want to throw out at the same time. 
Exactly. But, and, and let me make a point while I'm on it, because uh, otherwise yeah. my, my brain doesn't hold points very long here. So <laughs> um, you made a really good, really good point, though, is the one reason, and this was kind of my personality as an athlete, is when I when I get an athlete near the end of the season and they've been worn a little bit and the season's been long in the training, one of the reasons is uh, whether I do get the results that I want, I think I do because I've always had pretty good results and maybe it's just my, my tapering, my programming works pretty well. But the other thing is psychologically, the athlete understands the amount of a mental and emotional stress intensity, just doing the depth isn't going to be there for at least a couple of weeks. Now they're just, mm. let's get you fast. Let's feel good. Let's come in this workout, get out of it, go home feeling great. And I think there's an important part to that because in my early days, I did exactly what you've said. I just, we strength trained. We did our full range of motion, everything. We stayed strong. We manipulated intensities and volumes like we should. But as I got going, I started saying, because I would do it myself personally. I'm like, gosh, this feels good to only do a quarter of a squat. Mm -hmm. I, I feel really good. Like mentally, I'm ready to go back and do another. Even when I was doing like, you know, I'm not a real big bench pressure, but when I would play with, you know, uh, uh, just a partial motion, I'm like, gosh, this feels good. I feel like I'm ready to go again. So that's why I played with it, Pat. And I just found yeah. my athletes like, oh, this is great. Yeah, this, I feel good. I don't, I don't have to get crushed under the bar today. I'm like, nope, just get it. We're not mm -hmm. going light. But we're right. going to do it at a joint angle that's going to let you have the advantage over the weight this time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, like I, I think that uh, managing fatigue and like, I, you know, the things that get me excited these days are like, you know, maintenance of qualities. You know, like I feel like a lot of people don't get excited about maintenance. They only want to, hey, how much what do I need to do to develop this thing and make it grow? And I'm like, well, what's the least amount that I could possibly do to maintain something after I made it grow, you know, yeah. like, uh, and, and so I'm always looking for like that kind of information and cause there's only so much you can focus on at a given time. And, um, you know, kind of what I'm, what I'm sort of curious about is, is you've, you've seen, uh, enough time of coaching and different things coming and going. And I don't know if you work with younger coaches these days, um, but, you know, like, are you seeing differences in the coaches over the different generations and maybe what's going on nowadays in terms of like sort of what, what, are, the, what are the trends? What are some of the things that you see is that that are working or, or maybe some of the things that are that are getting in, in younger coaches ways that they could yeah. improve upon. Yeah. This, this right here, that question, I think is one of the primary things we have. The guys have been in this for a long time. We have to focus on to continue to make our profession greater because uh, I'll go back to, I was a big fan of the, the series monk monk was, I used to die laughing at him, but he'd always say, Oh yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. Cause he had this incredible mind. Well, technology is a blessing and it's a curse at times because I, when I first started coaching and I started coaching when I was really young, um, we didn't have this. You and I couldn't do this, right? We, I had to drive to New York if I wanted to talk with you other than getting on a, a rotary dial phone, right? Um, we didn't have this stuff. So we communication was better. It, what, what I think was much better was the management of bigger groups because you were forced to communicate face-to-face -face more than. 
You had to get in front of it. My background as a phys ed teacher taught me really well. I had no problem being in front of 50 kids when I was first graduating because that's what I had to do all the time. When I would get my, my interns, I had a lot of interns over the year from different colleges, Springfield and Brockport and, you know, in Scranton and all these, Ithaca. And um, they would come in and my training program was based on 10 to 12 athletes, but we had a system of how we did it. So you didn't have to, you know, you weren't just working with all 12 at the same time. We managed it. But my interns, Pat, struggled. They were like, I, like, I don't know how to talk to, like, how do I manage? How do I, how do I traffic flow this? And so a lot of my programming and a lot of my, my workshops became, this is how you manage groups. Okay. Let's say you're a modified football coach and you got 35 kids that came out of seventh and eighth graders. And you're by yourself because the school doesn't have money. Maybe you can get an assistant to come volunteer. How are you going to manage that? Because that's what's going to keep these kids involved. That's what's going to help you have success. So those are things that I think uh, we're lacking right now. And I think technology is great, but we got so many coaches now that you'll see them out on the field with this thing. And they're looking like this and they're you know going through. You know, you and I go out there and we just kind of say, hey, you're here, you're there. Wait till he gets through before you go because you guys are going to hit, right? right. Just, you know, common sense type stuff. You you talked earlier about um, Mike Robinson ran that clinic and we were in a hotel lobby, mm-hmm. uh, a hotel hall. Wasn't real big, but it was big enough. But, you know, we had to manage space. Like to, a lot of the choices, and this is a big one, and you can talk about this, and I've heard you talk about this, um, especially in the weight room, understanding what drill selection to use. If you have to accomplish a skill, I got to get this skill accomplished, what drill selection can I use based on the space allotment and the number of athletes I have? So when I run camps and clinics, that's one of the things I talk about. So you can't do a drill that takes 30 seconds when you've got 10 kids in line and you've got 15 lines of that. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to select drills that are one to two to three second burst and then get them out. Let them go. Let the next group go. Then the next group, because that's how you lose them. So that's an area of how I think technology has helped us in some ways, but other ways it's made us less uh, able to communicate our mm. message really well. And I think that's kind yeah. of sad. I, I like to see that come back. And I'll tell you, I think that, you know, I've got a two-year-old son now and, um, you know, I, it's a very urban area where we live and I bring him to the playground after, you know, I get him out of daycare and it's very interesting to see other parents and the ways in which they try to control these little beings (laughs) blows my mind where, you know, it's, it's like they, they take all of the self-governing elements away from these kids you know like the slide is a big point of contention when with all these kids and you know you get these parents wait for the other one to get done you know you have to wait and I'm like just let them slide into each other they'll figure it out they weigh 25 pounds like they can't do any damage to each other or like the forcing them share 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 and I'm like well they never get a chance to work together and figure this out on their own and problem solve and um, now they're they're so dependent upon someone else telling them what to do, and the structure is overwhelming. And yep. so the self governance and the 
creation of fluid structure is is like not a developed commodity anymore versus i mean like i was raised by grandparents and they were born in 1914 and 1915 respectively and the amount of input that they would give was very minimal and it was much more of like you know hey figure it out and um and and now that's such a across the board thing and i think technology does that even more it's outsourcing the figure it out on the fly element that makes people very, I I would say, kind of uh, rigid with their ability to deal with situations. Um, And so, yeah. That's so critical that people understand this because this goes across the board at all levels from elite down to the little, your, your child's age and five, six, seven, eight. We developed because we problem solved. We were mm-hmm. giving we were given the software and the hardware to do that because of our environment and our reduction in tasks that are given to us. We no longer use that parts those parts of the brains as extensively as we can. And there's a process called pruning. And if we don't actually use certain aspects of our brain and our abilities, we prune those and we don't use them. We don't have them access to that anymore. So I'm a huge fan of, of uh, you know, because what, what's funny, and you'll, you'll see this with your child, you have no say in when they crawl, when they decide <laughs> to grab the coffee table and get up and, and then try to waddle to the couch or to you who's holding your arm. You, that's, that's, you can't coach that. Like, you're not going to give them a progression, right? And uh, a guy, I, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but he always said, you don't teach your kids how to ride a bike. Like you don't go to a bike riding camp and on day one, you only use the right leg. And then on day two, you use the left leg. And then he said, you just, your body figures it out and the motor program and the balance process develops over time. And um, we're, we're becoming that way, even as teachers, because I can just real quick, I can get it rather than problem solving in my head and, Sometimes this posture right here, we step back. Sometimes as a coach, you got to step back and you got to go like this and like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, that's what I need to do versus always asking the question. Sometimes figure it out, figure it out. It's okay to be wrong because that's how the brain rolls its sleeves up and said, okay, now I got to solve something here. People are afraid of being wrong. Wrong is a great tool. It's a great mm-hmm. tool. Ugliness of training is a great tool in the early stages when kids are learning to move. We got to allow that stuff. So, yeah, I, I didn't mean to go off on a bandwagon because I knew you had more, but that's the no, stuff no, no. that keeps me point. up that night. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's all I'm trying to facilitate is, uh, is, is kind of getting to some of these points that are going to trigger something or spark something in your brain to let you take it to where, right. where what you've seen. And, um, you know, I, I'm kind of like as just a very basic thing. Um, you know, when I was a kid, certainly my, my primary sport was, was baseball. I played football as well, but, uh, it was the time period where every coach was terrified of lifting weights, you know? And, and for me, it was tough because, you know, I was coming up and basically what, what people didn't know at the time was sort of the beginnings of the steroid era of baseball. So I've got these coaches on one hand saying, never lift weights. You're going to be muscle bound. You're going to lose every gift you're ever given. And at the same time, I'm like watching Canseco Maguire just <laughs> crushing bombs and giving each other the forearm bash. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like these guys definitely lift weights. Like 
What you, Stand next to one of those guys, and you'll see how big they are. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is not corresponding very well. Yeah. Um, but we didn't know that it was the steroid era, and I don't know if those guys really were lifting much weights, to tell you yeah. the truth. I think they were just blasting gear and going out and hitting baseballs. Yeah. Um, you know, but I'm kind of curious, do you think that there is uh, a too young to lift weights or a, a certain point at which, you know, you're really not going to go there with development of young athletes until they get to this this certain stage? Yeah. You know, the great thing about having kids is you have a built-in guinea pig, right? And that's mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so my kids. I have three. I got my oldest daughter's 24. I got a 22-year-old daughter. And then my son's 14. All of them, when they were really little, especially my oldest, Jay. Jay was the one who just gravitated to all the stuff that I did. And so I remember she was like six, seven years old. She saw me doing a workout one time during lunch, my speed academy. I, I was by myself. She came in and and I was doing some Olympic lift. I was doing like snatch and some jerk and stuff like that. And she wanted to do it. So I grabbed my, I had a PVC pipe and I have a galvanized pipe that's about four pounds. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to learn the movement. And when I did it, and this was, you know, again, 20 years ago, almost a little, little less than 20 years. What I noticed, Pat, was, man, what an athletic thing for these young kids to learn. And because she never did it before, it was so easy to teach her just to mm. put it at her thigh, mid-thigh. I said, just jump and put it above your head. Just jump and land. And she started to get it really quick. And then she, all my kids are really good at the lifting because they, they were around it. So I look at it two different ways. I look at it as an athletic skill development when you take a skill like maybe a dumbbell split jerk just pop, just real quick just teach them how to do that generate some force like a medicine ball throw one arm two arm i look at those in the strength phase strength stuff for young kids they're learning to stabilize they learn where should my foot go if i want to push it hard and flat versus vertical so they start to figure that stuff out on their own so from a strength standpoint i think that stuff's important do I have to have them bench press and, and um, you know, dumbbell row and stuff like that? No, but I don't think it's wrong if we keep it in context and, we, and they want to do it. Um, I don't think it should dominate their overall performance. I think they need to move and do 180 runs and backpedal. And um, my, my father, who passed away many years ago, but in, uh, in World War II, was the head of physical conditioning and strength and uh, strength training stuff in Jacksonville, Florida for the military. And, and he was very big in gymnastics. So I grew up with a huge gymnastics background. And so he made us do, we were always doing different types of pull-ups and dips and things because it related to our gymnastics stuff. And then he got dumbbells for us. So as kids, we did all that stuff. But, Pat, it was amazing the dexterity we had, the ability mm. to control our bodies in handstands. I mean, I'm in third grade doing a round-off back flip. Nowadays, schools won't even let you go near that stuff, as where that's what we did. So that kind of strength training and power development, I think, is vital um, if we're capable of teaching things like that uh, versus just the, the structured, like, hey, I'm doing, you know, uh, you know, a, a five, three, one method or that. I'm not opposed to any of those, but with younger kids, I think we got to make sure we keep their, their gifts of athleticism and use that structural 
like payoff press. I love a payoff press because it teaches more than just core. There's so many things it teaches and I have a ton of variations for it. So all my kids learn to do variations of it, stuff like that. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And appreciating like the overall context of the yeah. big picture and that it's just like this piece over here and, and the difference between training and learning, yeah, you know, and, you um, and that is such a, a distinction, I think, that people don't make. Like, yeah. like I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, uh, but he was a former basketball player who ultimately kind of got into working specifically with children and children's athletic development. I heard him speak, and one of the big points he made was that children need volume and that they don't need intensity. And, you know, he was pointing out like intensity might mean different things than what you classically think of from an exercise science standpoint. Intensity can mean whistles and scoreboards and referee shirts and parents watching and lights and all that kind of stuff. What kids need on the other, they just need volume of movement, like literally six, seven hours a day of exploration and play and these sorts of things. But also teaching, you know, like when, when someone is instructing them on the skills of an activity and there's such a difference when it's someone that's like really trying to teach movement and like, hey, here's how your body works. Do you want to learn how your body works? And a lot of kids, you know, their attention span will, will go a million different places, but they will be interested in that. You know, there is that curiosity. It has to just be delivered I think in the appropriate way, um, you know, and so I, I am kind of curious with this upcoming seminar that you've got, which is a two day seminar, um, you know, just sort of the overall uh, feel of it and the overall structure of it. Uh, you know, again, like I, I haven't been able to go to an in-person seminar as a student in a, in a little while with, you know, COVID and everything else. Sure. So I'm, I'm excited about being on the other side again and, and just getting a chance to learn and participate but I'm kind of curious what I'm in for uh, coming yeah. up. Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, well, one of the fun things that I like to do with these is I'm a big, and you know this, because I'm a big conversation guy. I'm like, I like to give a concept. Now let's throw some strategies that fit into this concept of movement. And I'll give a couple examples here in a second. And then let's, let's talk about it. You know, mm. so like I might have you guys do a drill and like, you know, I, I'll say, hey, what, like, what mattered to you guys? Like when we did this, what was something that stuck out to you? And it's amazing because some people bring different things to the table because you, you might get a, like I'll have a lot of people that are strictly runners. They're just distance runners. So when we do the lateral stuff, they're like, man, that was really, I struggled with that stuff. And then you get the, you know, the, the, the former basketball player. They're, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, well, I did a thousand of these. No, it's no problem. So it's just neat to have that. So, for example, um, I, I'm going to we're going to break down the depth of the 180 series. And the 180 series is a it's it's vestibular it's body spatial awareness. It's running forward. It's what you would have done in, if you were an outfielder in baseball or a tennis player or a cornerback in football. You might be backpedaling or running forward, and then halfway you're going to flip, keep going in the same direction, but now you're either backpedaling or if you started backpedaling, now you're running. And we're going to talk about the, the strategies that go with that because there's several things that are occurring during that. And then, Pat, what we're going to do is 
We're going to challenge um, global mobility and local mobility because, like, if I'm running at you and I get halfway towards you and all of a sudden I start to do my 180s, we're going to do head and eye delays. So that means as I start turning, I'm looking at you as long as I can as my body's going through that 180. My people that struggle with cervical, thoracic range of motion, they block up really quick. And they yeah. start, going, I tell them, when you do these things, try to stay on the balance beams. Try to stay straight. And I'll see people, they're serpentine, they're going all over because their spatial awareness, their body awareness, and sometimes just vestibular is, is struggling. But sometimes they just lack mobility. They just don't mm -hmm. have it. So this is a, a dynamic way to gain that. And we'll have a whole series of that stuff that we'll go through that's gentle for your 70-year-old because we go through stages for them versus your college athlete that has to get after it. You know, we'll show the different mm -hmm. levels. And then we'll do the same thing with um, the various uh, gait cycles, the lateral gait cycles and why and how we use those. And it's all going to be based off these principles and then my concepts as to why we do it. And the other thing we'll drive is the reactive tier system, which we talked about, you know, when we had Mike's uh, uh, event there. So this reactive tier concept is built off what we talked about. We were born to react. That's the central nervous system. We, we either attack or we escape. And so we're going to use that in our movements. And we have a very, again, very light, comfortable progression that we can use based on who we're with. So like our population that's going to be at this, you know, some people are going to have some nagging old injuries so we can protect them. You know, we're going to have some people that are really feeling great and ready to go. And they can partner up with another group that's ready to go. And that's how we manipulate it. So, so we're going to do a lot of things like that. And you're going to like this, like you're going to enjoy this. I didn't do this at Mike's thing just because I didn't have all the, all the uh, balls and stuff. But we're going to do our roll and reach series, which is a phenomenal way to gain mobility, balance, um, uh, capacity work. It, it, there's so many things we can do it. So I think we'll have a lot of fun with this stuff and sharing ideas. Because every time I walk away, I'm like, that's what I need to add. That person mm -hmm. just gave me a great idea. I need to add that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I, that's one of my favorite parts about teaching seminars as well, is yeah. that because I, I teach it as a principle-based concept. Like, you know, here's some of my go-tos as drills as I understand my own principles, but I want you guys to feel free to create based upon your understanding of what you think these principles mean. And people always come up with things where I'm like, whoa, like that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool there. And, um, you know, I, I learned so much teaching. And like, I, I always have, I've always loved yep. it because that's where like, I don't know, like it's an energetic kind of a flow and a back and forth. And, you know, sometimes it's like you get these audiences that are a little bit quiet and that can be tough. It's like pulling teeth to get them it to participate. Is, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I always I, I really appreciate that. Now I'm definitely even more excited because, you know, for me, like I, I'm a very categorical thinker. You know what I mean? Like I try to classify every kind of movement I possibly yeah. can, put it in a bucket and then I think to myself, well, how do I actually manage to, you know, like, how do I program for this concept? You know, like, where do I start and how do I develop it? And I would say that my weakest area overall, I think, 
is in some of these areas that you're talking about. And, um, you know, cause I, it, like, I'm pretty good with linear speed development. I'm yeah. pretty good with strength stuff, but I've always been like, well, what do I do with multi-directional stuff? You know, where yeah. do you start and what sorts of trajectories do you create with this? And then how do you quantitatively progress it? Yeah. You know? that's, well, you know, you know, it's really cool with that. And this is a great kind of point we can make and give some examples of what we'll do. If I were to say to you, and the concept that I have and I developed over years is the lateral gait cycle, okay? The lateral mm. gait system. Now, most people talk about the gait cycle, walking, but the lateral gait cycle is different because the lead leg always is the lead leg and the rear leg is always the rear leg, right? Yeah. So let's say you were a fencer, okay? A fencer. The lateral gait cycle for you, and let's say I was an offensive line coach and I worked with, you know, left tackles a lot because they have to, you know, be able to have a good step slide and protect the quarterback. And then we had somebody else in our three group that worked with basketball players. All three of us work with the lateral gait cycle, but it's all different because the task is different. The environment's different, but the underlying concept and principle and method of movement is still about managing the center of mass mm. and how do I keep that in context of balance and spatial weight? Because if I'm that left tackle and I'm doing that and I overstride and I lean forward, a good defensive end is going to rip through or swim and I'm going to look really bad. If yeah. I'm a fencer that does not know how to use that lateral stride pattern to be able to reach and extend, I'm going to get pointed against first, right? It's going to happen. And same thing with a basketball player. If I'm, if I'm taught, commonly what I see now is people don't allow their athletes' feet to come together, kind of like the, you know, the plow step. Mm. But it's, it naturally does. It has to because that's how the gate cycle finishes. So if we take that away, now we don't move as well. So there's three different, completely different sports, all using the same gait cycle concept, but in a different manner, but the principle of force production down and away to move my center of mass still applies. And mm. that's the cool thing. So we can actually take all of this, put it in a huge sieve. And at the end, the concept's going to come out the same. It's just what strategy do I want to use? I can change my strategy, but still I have to produce force down and away. What if it was a boxer, right? And I'm going to throw, if I'm going to throw a right cross, I'm still managing my center of mass to move laterally, but I have much more transverse plane now, right? Into that, but I'm still moving my center of mass towards my opponent. Right. So now that's why I study boxing a lot because that's a different boxing and shot putting and things like that have a different way of managing kind of this tornado type action. So that's why we'll have a lot of fun. And I'm anxious for because I know you're great at, at uh, making me think and it'll make the whole group think. And then we'll kind of have these, you know, we'll all be going like this. And yeah. at the end of the day, hopefully we walk out of there thinking, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And that's really what it's about. Well, I'm so, you know, as soon as I hear you talking about the feet getting close together and, and uh, that being the kind of the finish of that, that pattern. And, you know, I, I, I got into combat sports and like the big thing is to never let your feet get close. And you, you know? wouldn't in that sport or football right. like that. Like, yeah, exactly. And it's sort of context dependent again. It it's is. like, in, hey, if your feet get close together in wrestling, you're on your back. 
exactly. know, if they get close together in boxing, boom, you're going to get popped. Yep. So it's, it's a different kind of an, an element. And, and to me, like, you know, I, I've taken so much away from Bill. It's kind of insane. Yeah. And um, one of the big things for me is just appreciating that, like, all the movements that you're going to see a human body make will follow an arcing pathway. You know, your joints all, I don't care what it is. It's like the Vitruvian man uh, painting of Da Vinci. Like, yes. it's all arcs. Everything is an arc. And to me, some things are kind of a half an arc and some things are a full arc. Like if you're going to throw a ball, it's the full expression of the arc versus a punch is like a half an arc, you know? And so it's similar to me when I think about that kind of footwork where you're purposely cutting the full arcing expression down for a sport like boxing or wrestling where you can't get into those positions because of the the specificity of the actual sport. But when I think about the, if you were to, like, throwing to me, there's no repercussions of following the full arc. Boxing, there's a huge repercussion of following the full arc. You have to protect yourself. You have to stay in close. And uh, so when I think about if I was to just shuffle as fast as I could side to side, I'm going to go through the full expression of this, this arcing movement of the limbs in that lateral direction versus with the other one. I'm never going to. If I was to to show boxing footwork, I would never move that way if I if my task was shuffle as fast as you possibly can exactly. from point A to point B. But that's not part of boxing. It's you're that's shuffling right. as fast as you can while not getting damaged in the process. Yep. So the yep. constraints of the game kind of create a difference in the full expression of of what the overall movement could be. Yep. You know? Hundred percent, and and here's the cool thing. So we have, I'm really big on kind of like you with categorizing and look at things. I'm big on giving movements names. So we have a, a specific type of shuffle that we use in basketball. It's called a snap shuffle, and the snap shuffle is very short, very quick, very violent, almost like almost like a boxer backing up or moving forward. Mm-hmm. We don't want the full excursion. We don't want the full amplitudes or ranges that I would do as when I test my athletes on a seven yard shuffle where I'm literally timing them. This is your 100-meter sprint for basketball. Bam, shuffle, hundred or seven yards, as fast as you can. We want to see what your capacity is at that skill. That's what I'm after. Yeah. But if I'm doing a, like we call a hedge technique or whatever, we're using a snap shuffle, so my feet are kind of like, pop up, real quick, pop up. Real, I don't want them close together because the task doesn't require it, and the ability to get back out of it doesn't require it. You got to have both ends. So to your point, it is. It's so important that coaches understand. Can the gait cycle look differently based on uh, the need and the demand? In a sport, it's going to take on what the environment is allowing and asking that athlete to do. But if I'm training them and I'm trying to get maximal speeds because I want to develop hip strength and hip range of motion, so I want to go seven yards as hard as I can, you bet you're going to see full range. It's no different than me testing like a a 40 or a 20, where if I start going towards the 40, even though my volleyball players don't ever sprint that far in a game, the elastic quality of the Mm -hmm. speed of touchdown values them, can help them in the sport because its central nervous system is being developed and the stiffness quality of the foot, the Achilles, the lower leg is being developed 
So it can be used when they have to jump quick. So right. there's where co- coaches forget about that. Like, well, my athlete does this. I said, I'm not. My athlete in basketball also doesn't put a 45-pound plate on their back and squat, but yet it benefits them when they play. Right. So we have to understand the value physiologically and, and all other areas to, to the performance. So, yeah. Yeah, there's so many things that are like <clears throat> the observable thing that's the end product and then the prerequisite that kind of exactly. underpins that. And sort of having an appreciation of, of, of those things. And, and then well, I've just seen so many times like the misapplication of you see it in a certain context and you like, I don't know, people come up with these crazy ideas. You know, it's like, well, boxers are great athletes, so we're going to train like boxers. And it's like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like you have some similar qualities associated with. Yeah. basketball and boxing but like the you know the essence of the the actual thing that allows the boxer to display this in the confines of boxing specific it, it to me it reminds me of like you know if you run cross country you couldn't possibly practice running up every iteration of a hill you know what I yeah, mean? Like exactly. we're going to train for roots at a 10 degree angle <laughs> on a seven degree hill. That's at a slant of three degrees going right. Like exactly. oh, if we don't train for that, we can't be good at this thing. And it's like, well, no, just have the fundamentals. And, and so like, you know, one of the things I'm always coaching and talking about is, um, you know, I want to find the layup version of every skill set that I can categorize, you know, and that's where I'm going to begin the process of teaching anyone a particular new skill set. And then if they can really understand the fundamentals of that, then they'll have this memory in their brain of like, hey, this is the essence of this task. And it'll just simply unfold under the different circumstances of when they find themselves similar to like, Hey, if we're playing baseball and you're trying to turn a double play, how you couldn't practice every version of that. But if your kid really understands the fundamentals of, you know, being able to get into and out of the essence of the concept, then it'll just, it'll just happen appropriately in the moment. Yeah. And what does the brain do, right? The brain stores patterns and it recognizes similarities to those patterns, and that's how it can recall it. That's why experience in a sport, like if we took a, uh, an eighth grader just coming up to freshman and now having to pay, play with a faster, bigger, stronger athletes, they struggle just because they haven't experienced those speeds and those patterns yet, as where the senior, you know, they look like they're hardly moving, but they're making every play because their brain recalls those patterns. And, and to your point, even if I, I used to explain this to coaches a lot, like if we have a pain point in a range of motion and we, it hurts us to get there, you know, what do they say? Like if you can train 10 to 15 degrees above and below that, and eventually, you know, we can kind of close down on that. Well, that's kind of learning a skill. I don't have to have it exact every time, nor can I really. It's just too many, there's too many variables that can happen. But if I'm close and I'm in the family, I'm in the family of that pattern, the brain is going to say, oh, yeah, I, I, I recognize so much of it. I know what's happening. I know what's, what I should be doing. And that's how the brain subconsciously gets us moving early because it, it just recalls the pattern really quick. So, yeah, I just think it's fascinating, this kind of discussion. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun to talk about. 
Yeah, there's there's no question. I mean, there's it's to me like the, uh, the you know, I, it's funny. I was I was talking about this with someone recently. Like, uh, is, there's some coaches I feel like that are afraid to put their information out there or whatever it is. And and to me, I'm like the problem is never putting the information out there. There's an abundance of information. There's information for forever, and it's yeah. it's much more of like getting more. Like, I want to expose as many people to as much information as possible to sort of raise the tide and bring all the boats up to a better level so that everybody is functioning better, training better, performing better, because then that facilitates greater competition. And the greater the competition, the more that's going to drive me to up my game. And it's just this universal feeding process that just makes everything better by just simply having that that attitude of, of pushing for abundance rather than fearfully guarding things close to the chest and like, Oh, I bet I better not let people find out my secret sauce to training. And it's like, come on, like that's, that's really not, that that's not a good approach to, to self-development, let alone to overall development of a field. But I'm kind of curious, like when you think about like, you know, and this will, this will be our last question here. Um, you know, where you see the future of training and, you know, getting better as a field, what are some of the things that kind of come to mind for you? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I do think people are starting to pay more attention to the learning equation. Like, how do, how do we learn as people? How do you and I learn mm-hmm. as the coaches? And, but how do these athletes actually learn? And I'm starting to see more posts and articles and, you know, they're putting things out there like how we learn. So I think that's a really good thing. And I think what they're going to find out is as a guy, his name is uh, Trevor Reagan talks a lot. He has a website called train ugly and, and it's, we have to embrace the mistakes and the ugliness, not because we're asking them to be ugly and make mistakes, but that's the process of learning that really truly triggers Mm -hmm. the, the organic growth of learning. That's why, you know, your two and a half year old stumbles when they lose the balance. That's just the learning process is occurring. That won't happen in two years, right? right. Not, at least not that way, right? It's going to happen differently. So I think that area is going to evolve. And I think, and this is, a, you know, we could go another two hours on this, but I think what we need to do is get the novice, you know, the moms and the dads and the volunteers who help out with, you know, rec leagues and all who were coached by hard ass coaches and, you know, were tough and, and yelled at kids because I think that hopefully eventually starts to, there's enough information out there, maybe by professional coaches going on TV more and, you know, the, the really high profile people starting to talk more about it. Like learning is so important that we have to understand it better. We, we can't just keep like our educational system to me is a mess. I think it's just a mess. And but coaching is kind of the same way in certain elements, simply because we don't have enough qualified coaches and not saying that we have all the answers. It's just that we've been we've been um, students of our craft and willing to make mistakes and ask questions. Most people aren't. And that's where we run into problems. You know, I don't have an ego. I'm I'm you'll find out and, you know, I'm very fine with people uh, asking me well, why would you do it that way when it's easier to do it this way? I'm like, you know, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Actually, that is easier. Let's do it that way. But at the same time, I'm not a, I'm not a bandwagon jumper. 
Like if something's worked for me for 20 years and it's been safe and healthy and proven to be really good, I don't just jump because some guy wrote an article on this new method works. That's not me. I'm like, it's got to really change my philosophy because I'm comfortable in my own skin coaching my way. Mm. And that's okay. I don't want people to coach like me. I just want them to understand concepts and expand. So I think that part is going to get better because guys like you, guys like Bill Hartman, who we've all just marvel at his brain and what he dispenses. And there's a lot of people out there, obviously, on the on a lot of these speaking tours that have great information. And I think if we can get more people to do that, Pat, I think we'll be in a, a in a better place. And, you know, yeah. it's never going to be perfect, but we'll get there. Yeah, pedagogy is such an interesting topic. And, sure. you know, that, that was the first area I went into. I originally thought I would be teaching history at a high school level and, you know, coaching baseball and football. And, and um, you know, I went off on a different trajectory. But um, I am really fascinated by, like, the science of learning. And, um, you know, one of the one of those big, like, poof, like, that's a crazy concept was in um, uh the book Thinking Fast and Slow, where it was pointed out that, you know, the military you classically think of is like these guys yelling at you and like blah, blah, blah. And it was talking about how uh, they had guys in these air, like the, the fighter jet simulators and guys would screw up and then the commanding officer would come in and scream at them and, and yell at them and the whole thing. And then the next time they'd go in and their performance would be better. And, um, you know, they were like, they came to this false conclusion that the performance was better the next time because of the negative feedback. But then they were able to tease it out with some research and they realized that like most of the time performance just regresses back to the mean. And so if you had a really lousy performance, chances are the next time you do it, you're going to be better. Okay. So they, they kind of had the control group of like, let's not do anything. And they had just as much of an improved performance after a bad performance is the guys that got yelled at. So they're able to sort of say like, look, like you're actually not helping anybody by screaming at them after the performance. But it's interesting because you come to this false conclusion that it's helping because technically you did see the person get better (laughs) after you yelled at them. But it's, so there's always like the, 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 you know, I always say like science, it takes a long time for its wheels to turn. But yeah. once they do, it's usually like a pretty dramatic explanation that really knocks down some of the false contenders. And you're like, whoa, this is fascinating. We've been yelling at people all these years because we've witnessed them get better, but they didn't get better because we yelled at them. They just got better because chances are you, you have a terrible performance and the next one's going to be better because that's just yep. average. It's the so, odds, Yeah. You know, uh, look, I, I just really appreciate you taking the time this morning. And uh, this Thank was a fascinating conversation me. to me. And and I'm even more excited thinking about this, uh, you know, the lateral gate cycle and the material that's going to come out of this. And I can't wait to show how horrible I am at this 180 <laughs> Hey, gonna... you still got, you got my hustle award at the Robinson uh, thing. I think maybe you almost went through the back wall when you and you Absolutely. and Ty and everybody they were racing and you you hit that back wall and I'm like all right we're gonna get thrown out of here <laughs> <laughs> you know as long as I'm healthy I go get it you know what I yeah, mean yeah that's like, right that's, that's what I really love it. <laughs> but uh hey thank you so much Lee I really appreciate it if you want to just thank let you, people man. know kind of where they can find you um you know if 
Thank you. Yeah, yeah. LeeTaff.com, real easy. You can find pretty much anything there. And I'm on social media at LeeTaff. If you go at LeeTaff, you can find me pretty uh, pretty easy. And I try to reach out to anybody. So if you message me, I try to get back as soon as I can. And I that's the part of it I love. If people have questions, I want to try to help if I can, because people were great to me when I grew up. So, um, so no, Pat, you're doing a great job. I appreciate being a guest on your show and uh, looking forward to see you in about a little, little over two weeks. Month. Or, yeah, something it, like that. It's coming up yeah, soon. Yeah, yeah, coming soon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, it's, gosh, I'm so confused with my dates now. Yeah, it's two weeks. Well, you're just in permanent summer now <laughs> in Florida. So, you know. <laughs> I know. I know. When you, yeah, when you guys had the snowstorm, I still had this t shirt on outside. <laughs> well, I, I probably did too, because I'm always sweating, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> All right, Lee. Thank you again. It has really been a pleasure. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate you.